0: The most common response for where patients got their product was still from a, a non-regulated source. And, and, and then it's, it's, it's hard to know what they're, what they're using and how it's working. So we're just starting to figure some of that stuff out. If the hospital or if the healthcare system isn't going to look into this, that's the horse is out of the barn. You know, if, At least in, in Canada, it's recreationally available. And if patients think it works, they're going to turn to it. So we might as well play a role in, in trying to figure some of this out.
1: Before we get started, I wanted to give a brief overview on the basic science of cannabis as we will talk about some of the components throughout the podcast episode. So the flowers and leaves contain about 500 distinct compounds and 144 different cannabinoids. THC and CBD are the most common. Now, THC has the majority of the physical and psychotropic effects. CBD has less psychoactive potential, but more calming and anti-inflammatory effects. THCA, which is a THC precursor, has many of the same molecular targets as THC and has anti-inflammatory, immunomodulation, neuroprotection, anti-neoplastic actions, but it doesn't have the same psychoactive effects as THC. Non-cannabinoid compounds are terpenes and flavonoids. These have demonstrated antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, anti-anxiety, antibacterial, and anti-neoplastic actions. I also wanted to mention that we have the endocannabinoid system, and this is implicated in inflammation, bone development, and pain. It's a complex network of receptors and transmitters that has been implicated in a number of uh, physiological functions, both in the central and peripheral nervous systems and other organ systems. It's also involved in memory, learning, reproduction, appetite, psychiatric symptoms, digestion, sleep and wake cycles, the regulation of emotion and synaptic plasticity. Welcome to The Medical Matrix, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Rosie Sender, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Erica Fisk. Today's guest is Dr. Herman Johal. He's an orthopedic surgeon and assistant professor in the Department of Surgery at McMaster University. His subspecialty training is in trauma orthopedics. He also is an associate program director. He holds a master's degree in public health and is currently doing uh, PhD work in value-based decision making at McMaster University. Welcome everyone.
2: Thanks for
1: having us. Yeah, of course. Okay. So today's podcast episode is on cannabis and its potential greater role in medical therapeutics. Our discussion will focus on potential for cannabis and musculoskeletal pain, given that we're all orthopedic surgeons, that's a particular interest of ours. And whether it's post-injury or post-operatively or just chronic musculoskeletal disorders. And so for many years, many physicians have turned to opioids like oxycodone or oxycontin for pain control in patients. It has become a regular part of post-operative pain management for musculoskeletal surgeries. So that's why today we wanted to discuss cannabis and its role in medicine and brought Dr. Joe Hall on because he actually has done some recent research work in cannabis and its role in musculoskeletal disorders. And I was excited to see that he had done this work because I'd been wanting to do this as a topic for the last uh, year. And then when I saw that he published some research, I was like, I know that guy. That's great. <laughs> I'm going to get him to come on and talk about this. So uh, thank you for coming on. And one of the places where I would like to start is what got you into this particular area of research?
0: Well, first of all, I just want to say, you know, thanks for having me. And it's great to connect after after such a long period of time, long enough. And it's, you know, it's been exciting, <laughs> exciting to, 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 you know, jump on an opportunity to, to be on your program. And, and, you know, it's been really exciting uh, seeing, you know, where Medical Matrix has gone and, and then to, to talk about cannabis Um uh, and its role that uh, can play with our orthopedic patients. So you know, thanks for having me. And and you know, really, with this question, just like yourself, it's it's sort of been something that I've been thinking about um, uh, ever since cannabis has hit the spotlight uh, in the last few years, especially in, in Canada with legalization and increased recreational use as well as medical use across both Canada and and also across the U.S. as well. You know, we've seen a large change in le- legislation shifts uh, in many states. You know, federally, it would still have some challenges based on the way it's been classified. But, you know, after every election, you know, we're seeing more and more states for change the way they, they view cannabis. And then with that, you know, it kind of reflects the way society has viewed this, uh, you know, this, this drug as it's been classified as, but something that's really been used on, on a medical basis uh, in a variety of at a variety of different times and, and now is no different you know and you know your introduction was, was a perfect sort of background in terms of where this research yeah uh, really has I think an important role you know there's no denying the role orthopedic surgeons have played uh, in opiates and 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 you know if you look at a third of prescriptions that have been abused they they originate from an orthopedic surgeon uh, as a provider and and you know whether it's for a chronic uh, msk uh, you know bone on bone arthritis uh, for knee, knee uh, hip and knee patients or, or something that's uh, following an acute injury you know we, we tend to turn to to an opiate based medication as a first line therapeutic and then these two kind of came about at the same time, you know, as, as a lot of attention was being drawn to opiates. Uh, similarly, a lot of attention was also being garnered by, by cannabis. And so but seeing that being someone interested in, in patient-centered research, I thought this would be a place that uh, would be rife for, for opportunity to look into. Um, and it really came from patients. You know, you know, I run a primarily a trauma practice where patients come in uh, after all kinds of fracture dislocations, polytrauma. And they, they do typically get uh, started on on uh, opiate tip in Ontario actually hydromorphone tends to be the one a lot a lot go to and uh, as these patients are coming into clinic I just noticed a lot a lot more of them were asking questions about you know hey as, as we do with our history physical it comes up that they use cannabis and, you know sometimes they sort of bashfully admit to it when you ask them a smoking question you know they say well I I, I don't smoke cat tobacco I'll smoke cannabis and, and you know when I wouldn't really flinch they would say like, oh like uh, that's okay and like oh, you know let's we can talk about that later and And then when it came time to talk about pain control, I would just use that as as an opening.
1: Yeah, that's great. I think I've mentioned this to you already, is that, and this is completely anecdotal, but post-operatively, I've had a lot of patients that would self-medicate with either smoking weed or just doing CBD creams and found that it was effective enough pain control. They weren't asking for any more opioids or or other forms of pain control from me, any prescription drugs anyway. Actually, I would never give anybody a second prescription for opioids. Uh, Usually what I would do is that, give one prescription postoperatively, just like we're kind of sort of ingrained to do. And we can talk about that in a little bit, but then, you know, on their post-operative visit, if they require more, depending on the situation, for the most part, if I found that They were either taking too much or they wanted more. I would really refer them to a pain control physician because I'm like, I don't want to contribute to that because there are probably multiple different modalities that a pain control physician could use to help manage the pain versus giving another prescription for an opioid.
0: Yeah, and I think you know that's it's a, it's a great approach, and I think that's a newer approach certainly, especially in orthopedics. It's, it's as you sort of alluded to in our training, we're, we're conditioned to just you know write that automatic prescription for you know as little as 30, as high as 80 or 120 Percocets after a standard procedure, whether it's a you know knee scope, ankle fracture, hip replacement, and. And, and without good guardianship over that, you know, it would be very easily become an automatic prescription at the two week visit. And then maybe at the six week visit. And, and then before you know it, you have a patient who you're trying to actively get off and then you don't have a long, you don't have that long therapeutic relationship with them that say a family physician or another provider might have, that can adequately manage these. And, and, but, you know, we can't deny that we start that and we play a role in it. So, you know, when we have things like this and, and you know get, cannabis is potentially an option here it's it's one tool that you have in a toolbox of pain control but you know it, the, the key is it's an option outside of what traditionally used and 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 something that potentially has a better safety profile which you know it's it's uh it's still the wild west and and, you know we've done some research in it but there's very very little and then that's where you know a lot of the the discussion begins around the research in cannabis has traditionally been you know around chronic pain if anything cancer related pain uh, and that's where it's traditionally played a role as an analgesic and and it wasn't really talked about much you know there's been a lot of taboo around it societally and you know, with federal, federal, and you know, state or provincial legislation, that's really restricted how well it could be researched. And you know, anything that's available out there, you know, sort of pointed to maybe it plays a role in chronic pain. Medication is an option, but acutely, you know, after an acute injury or surgery, no one. The research around it is, is really not there clinically. There's some basic science evidence out there, but it's it's really not strong. And so the first step was just bringing the conversation up with patients. So we did a survey of of, of trauma patients, arthritis patients, and spine patients that were just actually filtering through the results now and getting ready to publish. And similarly, we asked providers as well, just, you know, what is their experience with cannabis uh, around MSK issues, whether it's acute or chronic arthritis type of pain or spine-related pain what role do they view it in, uh, as in terms of uh, their medical treatment of, of, uh, with respect to analgesics, how much of their opiates could they replace. And it was really interesting going through those results, you know, The surprising part, I say, uh, for me in cannabis has always been the patients that ask about it. And it's not who you would typically think, you know, it's, it's, I have patients who are ex-RCMP, art officers, or, you know, are people who are in their 60s and 70s coming through and asking about if it's something they can use as a cream, uh, a CBD-based cream or something that's uh, an edible-based oil or whatnot, they can put into, you know, teas and and it's just, there's no, it's, it's, you know, there was not, not, no training on how to have this conversation or so that's really prompted a lot of the, the initial in this area for us.
2: See, I find that what I've noticed here and like I'm in the middle of the country now in, in Indiana and there's a huge openness in California where you might have somebody who was not otherwise exposed to cannabis or or CBD and they would be much more willing to accept that as a treatment option. And here in Indiana, I was really surprised when I moved, I just moved recently is that there are so many CBD shops here. I mean, cannabis isn't legal here, but I saw like your local subway closed down and there's a CBD oil shop. And I remember these places from childhood and now I'm here 20 years later. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a CBD shop down the street. And my question is, is that how are you getting these? It's, it's I guess it's maybe surprising that, to see that who is actually interested in it because those people who have not otherwise been exposed to, to jump to like, Hey, you know, what about cannabis? Something that has, has this stigma historically and has been illegal and still is illegal here in the States and many places to be like, Oh, let me try that. And how do you breach that as a potential treatment option for terrible MSK related pain? Because I think it is a huge problem for for MSK injuries and pain, I feel like is more substantial, or significant than some other pains in surgery. I don't know, like soft tissue pain, like bone pain is real.
1: Yeah, and, and extremity
2: pain and trauma pain from injury like that is is like very, very intense and substantial. And so, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know exactly what my question is here, but like one, breach of the subject of, you know, introducing cannabis as an option to people who otherwise might have some type of preconceptions about it. And how do you go from people like, hey, I want my oxycodone? I'm like, hey, no, 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 you don't need that. Cannabis is where you need to go. Like, when does that discussion happen? Is it your two week? Is it your six week? How are you breaching it now?
0: Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it all comes down to, you know, pain is a very subjective thing and it's mm-hmm. different. It's going to be different from person to person. And, and a lot of it is situational. And, and I, I, I work and operate in a very acute realm. And trauma, I'm having my conversations with patients in the eMERGE department or, you know, fracture clinic or pre-op holding area often around, you know, this is, and the conversation is you broke a bone, it's supposed yeah. to hurt. No, but like,
2: you don't know these people from anybody, like trauma patients, you don't have that, um, that preoperative relationship or that, that relationship going into a surgery where you're having an elective type procedure, like you don't know mm-hmm. these people and like, hey, random person, how do you feel about taking this rather than pain meds? Is
0: right. that and, 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 yeah, I was just going to say, it's you know, it's a very, uh, it's an interesting way to meet patients. And I often okay. say I, I get to meet, I get to know my patients after, after I operate on them, usually after the fact. And in that introductory conversation around pain, I, I, you know, I get the information as a history and physical, usually that's when I, I That's my assessment of what their experiences with cannabis in the past. It's usually just you know part of my smoking, drug, medication history. I'll I'll typically ask around it, and that's when I'll I'll find out if they've used it in the past and or if they use it on a regular basis. And and then as we're discussing what the pain is going to be like with their injury, the standard of care and it's it's undeniable because it is very real pain. Is is they still will get a pain medication for opiates after Mm -hmm. I fix the broken bone. That's going to be like Rosie a two week prescription, and no refills after that. You know. Barring any real on un- sometimes, uh, you know, situation changes, but you know, typically two week prescription. And then, as they're trying to uh, deal with their pain that's still going to be evolving, uh, it, the most helpful thing at that stage is typically an anti inflammatory or some multimodal pain control. That's when I bring in the discussion around acetaminophen Advil, and Advil Malt- or Mold any and other non anti-inflammatories. And I say and by CBD and cannabis is also potentially considered an anti-inflammatory medication. Uh, so if you want to continue to use that for your pain control, we can discuss. That. And then that's when I, I bring it into the conversation and then the patients can bring that in at the next uh, two week follow-up.
2: That's impressive. So if someone has an acetabular fracture, you give them two weeks of pain meds and that's it. You're like, see you later.
0: <laughs> well that's what i mean it's situational and, and you know if right. it's a if it's an ankle fracture it's different if it's like a polychroma you know that's it's, it's right. sometimes they'll, they'll get something up to six weeks but then i do start uh, other modalities as soon as i can and especially when i'm seeing them in outpatient settings and, and uh, at least introducing that concept because that's i think we're trying to move people away from opiates is the only solution yeah.
1: Okay. And I think one of the other things I wanted to mention when you were sort of talking about when to introduce this, part of the issue is also the marketing message too, right? Because the pharma companies have marketed OxyContin, Oxycodone very well. You have to figure out a way of convincing enough physicians or, well, one, we need data to do that, but also but convincing enough people and to change the marketing message around... Cannabis as like, yeah, anti inflammatory benefits. You framed it as a potential anti inflammatory benefit to it. Yeah,
0: and it's just trying to discuss what we know about it, you know, and, and that's uh, the, the very little evidence out there sort of discusses its roles in anti inflammatory. The other role that we're just now starting to explore in, in trauma patients is is, is anxiety and, and sleep. You know, that's another area that's not pain, but it's related. And it's something that definitely gets, uh, takes an impact after the types of injuries some of our patients go through. And that's the other sort of role that and it's, it's really been a, a discussion and evolution. And, and I put a lot of credit to the fact that I practice in an environment that does you know a lot of research and patient outcomes. And we have interventions where in our, in our fracture clinic now, we're, we're screening patients for virtual psychiatric support. As part of their recovery, and you know, and part of that is that's where another it's another opportunity to discuss the role of things like, like cannabis. Because um, you know, when we talk to our patients about it, our focus groups, and our research, one of the characteristics they describe about the role cannabis might play in their recovery is that they have pain. As we discussed after you know after an acetabulum fracture, you're going to have a painful hip for a period of time, and and cannabis sort of helps them reframe their approach to the pain, and then they still feel it. They just you know it, it's but it's further away, and they're able to to go through their rehab and their physical and do the things that they they need to do so that's one benefit the other is it helps people just readjust to their new reality you know someone was driving driving to work and and are about to have a very normal day and then their life is changed in an instant when they have this mbc and uh, there's a role for cannabis in terms of psychotropic properties and that's where you know the attention to cbd has always been you know anti-inflammatory but thc also potentially may play a role here in helping people adjust to and the current circumstance and, the, and post-traumatic stress disorder, and sleep, and anxiety, and lots of other interconnected things. So I think we're just starting to uh, look into some of this now, as, as just you know the patients are telling us this is their experience with it, and and, and the challenge is, is the the companies who've, who are behind oxycodone and, and and all of the other traditional analgesics. And a lot of work to have hard indications and make it convenient to prescribe x number of pills this is the range this is you know this is how your prescription looks and then we don't know what that is for cannabis there's not there's not enough information to really tell us what that is right now and there's not a lot of convenient ways to administer it at least to, you know hasn't been in the past and so that's where i'd say a lot of the work is moving towards in terms of looking at this as an alternative
1: And also, I think you would get a lot of pushback from pharma companies too, in a way, right? Because again, this is like a competition for them too, right? So it's an interesting space because in a way, it's a cornered market. Uh, especially in musculoskeletal pain, to bring in cannabis. In some ways, I think it's society that kind of pushes the fact that it happens, but it's certainly, you know, in terms of the marketplace, it's certainly a competition for what we have right now. So it would be kind of harder to do. And the other thing, I think in Canada, you guys are in a good position because it's legal there, like all across the board. Right. So there's more opportunities I think you have there to really fund a lot of studies really do randomized control trials in in multiple different areas to prove its efficacy or not like again you have to really do rigorous trials to see and then you can really make an argument for it as a valuable form of pain control
0: it's a, it's, it's a challenging environment still you know even though we have a more favorable environment to do that from a regulatory standpoint it's still it's the Wild West and then and, and you know I'd say your experience going back home to Indiana and seeing like CBD you know, you, who knows what they're selling Absolutely. right now? Because the problem is, it's it's not <laughs> it's not regulated. The product isn't checked for consistency and what's uh, you know the ingredients. And we have that you know here now. There's still a very there is still a very gone Regulated market for cannabis in Canada, despite it being legal, and I think that's a different discussion. But you know, the market that's there is trying to look into the products that they're they're having for both recreational and medical usage, and and trying to develop at least some standardization in terms of how we discuss it across different products. Because you know, there's, there's discussions around THC versus CBD content, and then there's other cannabinoids and terpenes that are beneficial. How you administer it, and all kinds of other issues come into play with how it will interact and, and work for the patient so it's 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 the challenge is it's it's a medication it seems like something is there based on what patients are telling us but there's a lot still to unpack and research and that's just now starting to happen in Canada in the last few years it does take a lot of time to to drive some of these machines up behind a really rigorous RCT we've got a few that are like you know poison just just starting in Canada at the at McMaster Um, but an issue is, is is Health Canada is aware that it, uh, although we are in a, in a favorable place to do this, so there's a big spotlight and there, that research has to be done rigorously. So the, the, the licenses behind the research for a lot of hospitals, have been in, in, in a little bit of a limbo for for like a better probably over a year now. As we're getting some of that green light, is just starting to open up the trials and the RCTs are coming. They're they're still a few years away, and then the products being tested or that's the other issue is we don't really know. There's a lot of the history behind a lot of these products is anecdotal evidence. You know, if it, uh, the patients that we traditionally ask in our surveys, you know, what do you use? Oh, it's just some stuff I got from some guy. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the most common yeah, on Street. <laughs> Well, it's uh, in the most common response for where patients got their product was still from uh, a non-regulated source. And then that's, it's, 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 hard to know what they're, what they're using and how it's working. So we're just starting to figure some of that stuff out. So it's an interesting area to do research in from that level, but it's a very challenging area. And and one of the other issues is if, if the hospital or if the healthcare system isn't going to look into this, that's the horses out of the barn, you know, it, at least in, in Canada, it's recreationally available. And if patients think it works, they're going to turn to it. So we might as well play a role in, in trying to figure some of this out.
2: Do you think that has the same benefit for acute pain as it does chronic pain? For people who have kind of, I guess, have used all the opioids, and now you're on a chronic pain type of regimen versus, like, okay, you're just right out of surgery, and you know, is this an option for people who have acute surgical pain as well as chronic pain? I mean, uh, I, is it as beneficial?
0: There seems like there might be a signal there, but we just don't know. I'd say enough about what component of cannabis it is that's it's helping people with their pain control and post-op pain acute post-injury pain is a very real phenomenon and and we do need to have a way of helping patients through that and then right now the best or the standard of care is still typically something for sure. therapeutics that's that's opiate based Cannabis may play a role with, in combination with acetaminophen, in combination with other anti-inflammatories. Sure. So now we have some trials going on that are focused not necessarily on cannabis as the intervention, but on just a multimodal non-opiate alternative, and that might be where it, it may have some role for for surgeries that are say quite minimally invasive, like arthroscopy, mm-hmm. uh, less invasive, like uh, peripheral extremity surgery. But uh, you know, acute. We have know, not met my patients for- <laughs> Well, it's. <laughs>
1: she's a foot ankle surgeon
0: it's it's, it's, it's especially you know if if you get into complex regional pain syndromes and that kind of thing it's 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 a very difficult area hand and wrist is notorious for that right and i think that discussion is not just about one one treatment alternative it's you know it's recognizing that you're going to have a problematic patient with their pain approach to pain very early and trying to get them into other especially non-opiate forms in that in that situation medications
2: my main outlook on like where this could be hugely beneficial is in the elderly population. You're talking hip fractures, all your basic bread and butter orthopedics and the elderly fragility fractures where opioids are really dangerous, and maybe trying in that population where the risks are are so substantial, and you're having respiratory distress and you know confusion and delirium and all these things that are associated with your opioids, and bringing in something like cannabis in a in maybe an edible like a edible fashion. Would be hugely beneficial as a multimodal a treatment to elderly fractures and
0: and musculoskeletal injuries. A big part of it has been, or kind of question around, it, is how do you administer it? And and, and you know and. and we traditionally think of an analgesic as being a pill it's very easy to dose and regulate and although there's been some research around it it's, it's still very difficult to, especially if, when cannabis is typically orally administered it tends to act like a long-acting anything so it's like mm-hmm. it's like the same of getting a controlled released opiate essentially and that's an effect that you can predict for is going to stick around for four to six hours mm-hmm. potentially up to eight depending on who it is and then and there's transdermal topical mm-hmm. medications as well that it's still really difficult to know how well they work or if they work at all but you know when you talk to elderly patients or elderly patients approach us about it uh, this tends to be where they begin the conversations they talk about you know the drop edibles or lotions or something they can utilize and then you know i think if once uh, there's an effective way to really administer it in a reliable and reproducible fashion i think that's going to be an interesting place to to look for the effect and, and where we can use it and then it, it has to be, you know, you mentioned delirium, It's you have to be careful when you administer, you know, aspects that might be psychotrope, psychotropic. Right. And, and, you know, once, uh, you know, grandma to go on a bad trip, so to speak.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that's where we can sort of look at more CBD based medications, perhaps for our elderly population, something that has like less psychoactive effects. Have
2: you guys ever used any of the CBD oils yourself or any of these treatments? Oh question. I've
0: CBDs for-, <laughs>
2: for medical problems, <laughs> really, medical issues. <laughs> It's hard for
0: an American to answer that question, I guess. But, uh, you know, I mentioned I go on annual ski trips. And, and last year at our ski lodge, they had it at the, right at the front desk. They had a CBD lotion for, for after those runs. And it's just they have it. It's, it's in the Canadian environment. It's out there. You so.
2: can buy it on Amazon. Yeah. So you kind of feel bad yeah. about it. So. I mean, people would come in and they would say, do you know anything about CBD? I was like, listen, I don't know a lot about the science behind it, but people who come in and they've used it, they love it. And it has a lot of anti-inflammatory properties. I don't know all the details, but it certainly wouldn't hurt you. And you can buy it on Amazon, literally. And so I had Achilles pain and I tried it and it really does work. I swear. You mean, know, like I stretch, I did all like your typical things, but you rub it on And it really did make a difference. The CBD oil treatments, and I used it for a couple of weeks and I actually noticed a difference that I just, it's such a low risk thing to offer as an alternative to some of the other things like a Voltaren or some of the other anti-anti-inflammatories, topical anti-inflammatories
1: hundred percent. Like I mentioned before, I've had several patients come in and they'll tell me that they're already using CBD creams. There are some patients we have that are not good surgical candidates or the issue that they have, it probably should wait a little bit or, or whatever the reason is, right? And some of those patients were using CBD creams and handling their pain very well or post-operatively they were handling pain well with just CBD creams. And I had patients that were not just the younger population, most of them were like middle age or older that were coming in.
0: I mean, the discussion is changing around this, and it's just like if it's something that's out there that works for patients, yeah. Why, yeah, not, why not um, figure out a, a, an educated way to discuss it? You know, and that's uh, it's it's interesting being able to discuss something that was previously thought of as, as you know illegal and in the same category as, as, as narcotics. Sorry, as opiates that uh, essentially is a street drug. And now it's the discussion around is being flipped on a societal level and a medical level. And, but, you know, the discussion on opiates is still, there's a taboo around opiates now because they're, they can actually kill your patients <laughs> compared to something where this is a something that I was previously conditioned to think is illegal and bad. And actually, hey, by the way, it might not be so bad. And, and lots of people are starting to talk about it being legal as an option. And then research so far has shown that it's uh, safety profile is better and then the you know the questions still remain you know to know what about smoking or and how, what kind of conversation do we have with patients around that and if people are going to use it what's my responsibility in terms of counseling them in terms of how to use this but then that's what i think we're trying to figure out I, and i don't know what what you guys have when people talk to you guys about it in terms of smoking it or using it what do you guys have a, a spiel for them yet or
1: i don't specifically have a spiel for it i do discuss that there are many less side effect profiles and promote some of the anti-inflammatory benefits and and so I'll I'll say things generally about it. They just kind of want some validation. So it's like they're looking for a cosine that it's okay.
2: No, I don't have a spill either. I mean I think that a lot of people just like again in California, everybody's kind of has some relationship or awareness or, you know, has has dabbled in some ways. And And I think that my biggest thing is, is that it's not regulated. And it's like, okay, well, if you're going to be doing this, I don't really, you know, there's not a whole lot of research and data on it. If it's for you, then great, but be careful because none of this is regulated and make sure that, you know, your sources are credible or, or I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a a complicated thing because there isn't very much data on it. And so I can't, condone it or or dismiss it. And then I, you know, I have a good story about this because I was like, yeah, you know, if CBD was working for you and you have this chronic pain, go ahead. And I had this lady who had a hallucinogenic surgery. I swear to you, she quit her job and started growing cannabis in a free (laughs) factory. And she sent a picture of her cannabis, like field, to my cell phone. Wow. I was like, how, how did you get my cell phone number? Yeah, that's and true. no, I did not own this. And good luck with you. I'm happy you're not asking me for opiates anymore. And like, I love you. But like, no, I I I have to like put a wall here. But I swear she was she sent me a picture of her field. And so it's a little bit sketchy because it's not legal here everywhere. And it's so unregulated that it's hard to be fully Backing something that doesn't have FDA approval and whatnot as a physician, and I think that until the data is out of here, it's going to be a little bit of a line to to dance on.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with Erica.
2: Yeah,
0: it's a very. It's a, it's a tricky space, and you know that I liken it to the the time period we went through right before kind of cross country legalization, and you know there's a lot of discussion around it. A lot of uh, illegal, more and more illegal storefronts were sort of popping up in the period right before legalization, and that was when it was really difficult to discuss around mm-hmm. it because you know it's the the it, I tried looking into some evidence, and that's kind of the the first stages of me sort of beginning to look into this, and there wasn't a lot out there. You have no idea what. The patients using, and, and you know how to counsel around that was very challenging. And as, and as the legalization sort of came on the scene, and more and more government regulated you know, shops were out, and you know, you patients now had access to something that was, was screened and tested and, and, and in government level facilities. And there was a medical, a lot of these companies now that are popping up, or and, and really, get, really doing well now, are have both recreational and medical aspects of it and and that they, they have a different way of discussing each one and, and, and how they're going to develop each product so now the science I think is starting to come on at least in terms of the consistency of product which uh, now mm-hmm. when we discuss it when I discuss it with patients and they mention that they they are using it for their pain and I'll say you know all I can tell you is, is, is try not to smoke it because uh, you know that's uh, as, as a physician I, that's just inherently something combustible that you're taking into your lungs probably isn't True. a good thing and then you know there's other forms like drops and oils and edibles and, and creams potentially that are available, and they're available at our, you know, around the corner pot shop, essentially, like in wow. Canada. So that's it's a, it's a regulated three so. brownies, Pierre. Yes, exactly. <laughs> two four hours. <laughs> it like,
2: yeah. no, it's until it's regulated. It's going to be really hard to to. It's, to manage it and recommend it because you just never know what people are
0: getting. <laughs> and that's just it. Yeah, and for some people to sort of sidestep the conversation, you know, we have, and I'm sure they have it in California, we can refer people to, to pain specialists that uh, will discuss this with them. And, and it's run, at least in our city, it's run through uh, physicians who are working with anesthesia and emerge and, and to various different pain researchers. So uh, we have an option to kind of uh, have people go that way. When we ask orthopedic surgeons, it's no surprise that people say I'm like, well, you guys just don't want to discuss it or bring it up because we don't have training. We don't know what's going on and the evidence really isn't there. So I think the hesitancy is valid for sure. And we're trying to get a lot of the evidence to make a better discussion around it coming up.
1: Because we try to practice in an evidence-based approach, right? That's just the way we've been trained to do it. That's just and you know, I still that's the right way to do it. And even though I think we can all see the benefits of it, we still don't have enough data to be completely comfortable with saying it's fine. And like you said before, we don't know the exact sources. We don't know exactly what's in the composition of the C B D oil that they're buying off of Amazon. There was some news program, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago that did highlight nine companies were touting CBD products, but there wasn't really much CBD in them or something, you know? So there's a lot of fraudulent claims about the composition of what they're selling or the efficacy or the concentration of CBD. So there's no regulation. And I think ultimately what needs to really happen is we really just need to have a lot of trials. We need to have research. We have to show this amount of CBD works, this concentration of CBD works or THC or whatever you're studying and really document this data so that even if there are companies that pop up and can make things you can make regulations you can make products based on the data that you get from these studies that can prove what actually works and then it's going to be easier to approve with FDA and then it's going to be easier for us to be able to recommend it as a common form of analgesia right for patients but like i think it all comes down to we really need to be able to do Really good, rigorous trials like randomized control trials. We really need to get data, effective data that we have some guidelines on. What would Mo say?
0: Yeah.
1: What would Mo say?
0: Absolutely. You know, it, it's always going on in the back of my mind as well. <laughs>
1: well, well,
0: speaking, you're, 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 you're well, absolutely. You know, right out of the page of most uh, Mo's books, got to be evidence-based. But you know, one interesting thing is, is is RCTs are, they're sometimes tough to do and they're expensive and they, they're time consuming and and, and then, like I kind of alluded to, and in some aspects, the horse is out of the barn, at least in, in Canada and some, some states that have already uh, jumped to legalization. So, doing an RCT in an environment where we actually have, don't really have control of what patients are using, even though they might have the placebo pill or the placebo cream, who knows what they're, they just say, Hey, this pill doesn't seem to be working and who knows what they're going to use anyways. So yeah, I mean, a hundred percent for sure. It makes it tough. And I think that's going to be one of the challenges that's going to be ongoing with this now and in the space it's in is the rigorous trials are going to be a challenge to do and, and, and depends on how controlled you're going to try to make them. Are you going to have patients do a blood test and urine test to see if the placebo arm is really a placebo arm and then who's going to agree to that? And if there's lots of issues behind that. So we can try to be as evidence-based as we can. And then I think, you know, the, the, there's lots of conflicting storylines with cannabis. And I think one of the, the issues around opiates is, 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 and you can't deny that. But then I think that's also a reason for a lot of hesitancy because last time we were pushed to recommend something as an analgesic, look what happened, right? you know. And it's, it, it, it's, it, I think it's uh, people are cognizant of that, and, and that's uh, you know, that's why there's still a very real stigma from providers, I think, especially, it's, it's going to be a challenge, The one of the most challenging things to deal with with this as a discussion, as an, as an option.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with what you're saying, that there's going to be difficult in doing these randomized control trials. And obviously, there's a lot of issues around it. But I'm just, I think what I was getting at was that that's kind of the only way that you can really feel comfortable, though, as a physician, realistically, right? To be able to say, I can on good faith, really recommend this amount of CBD or THC, whatever, based on clear cut data that I have. That's all I was getting at. I understand that it's a very difficult thing to do, but that's what would make it easier for us to give it to our patients.
2: For me, like you, you touched on this a little bit in the the research. What are the real risks for people listening? Like what are the real, real downfalls of using cannabis Aside from the mental alterations you have from have, using cannabis, I don't know what the right word is to, to say that, but for having some altered mental status, what are the real risks of using cannabis as a potential as a pain alternative? I mean, what are the risk-benefit ratio? And it's like, well, yes, I think
0: this <laughs> Well, I think then that's the other um, interesting place to have a discussion around. This is, is differentiating something that's medical and we're we're trying to mm-hmm. discuss it as a medicine, is something that's also recreational. And, and and you know, what's a side effect versus something that's an expected effect? Mm-hmm. And, and when we talk about medication, we typically talk about harmful side effects being right. medicated any effects that are outside of your intended purpose. So if it's an analgesic, you know, anything that's going to cause me dizziness, lightheadedness, dry mouth, nausea. You know, a lot of these are are. are it's the side effects and, you know, and the cannabis is no different. The, the most commonly reported side effects would, were things like, uh, you know, when you get to the cognition, so uh, impaired cognition, uh, potentially impacts on short and long-term memory are the ones that I think get the most attention. And, and I think those are very important ones, especially when you're discussing things like age of use, what's the minimum age that you're going to even discuss this as an option. And, and, and you know, you don't want, while well, you're still dealing with plasticity and, and brain development, it's, you know, definitely, definitely no because of that that side effect. So those are, I think, the most important ones that typically come up. Uh, You know, then there's other ones like dry mouth and uh, red eyes and and, and all kinds of things that a lot of users actually who use cannabis are – you know, yeah, okay, big deal, but that's actually it's a side effect that they might have ex- accepted on a recreational level, but now we have to discuss it on a medical level. So those are the ones that typically would come up as part of the discussion, but the one that's a noticeably absent from it is, the, is death, and, and that's the one that, when you talk about it as an analgesic, uh, gets mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the attention, because when we traditionally think of a pain medication uh, as being bad the opiate example comes up and that's the, the the side effect that everybody is most concerned about and, and then that discussion isn't there with cannabis which is and i think that's been why it's it's entered uh, entered the discussion so to speak even on this on a, at this level so but the side effects that you know the, the expected ones that have been reported uh, tend to be the ones uh, you know mentioned with cognition dry mouth uh, mucous membranes um, you know, what about you know addiction? appetite nausea vomiting <laughs> uh and cannabis use disorders is is the the another one that gets attention now and it's just starting to I think get a lot of research into it in, in, in terms of how how real it is and, and what the risk factors are for developing that.
1: For addiction, you said? Is that what you yeah, said? for
0: yeah, yeah I mean cannabis use disorders is kind of the broad umbrella that they give them.
1: I think where the discussion gets a little bit murky is that with cannabis use, if you're talking about addiction potential, like you know, it's like any anything can have some sort of addiction potential, right? But again, when you look at Cannabis and death rate like opioids are addictive, but like they have a significant death rate. But cannabis doesn't have that death rate. And so that's where things get a little bit murky, too. And also like alcohol. Alcohol is legal. The death rate from that is pretty high, you know, from either alcohol related health issues, you know, liver diseases or trauma like motor vehicle accidents or whatever. So that's pretty high. Tobacco is legal. And we know how awful that is on multiple systems in the body. Right. So it's interesting that cannabis, given even its side effect profile, whatever we do know, it still doesn't seem as harmful, as things that are legal for us, that are okay by society standards.
2: See, you sound Don't like you you're right in your office.
0: Everything's recorded.
2: Everywhere, USA.
0: I know, I know, but <laughs>
1: Canadian heritage, you know, growing up in Canada, it was never a big thing. You know what I mean? Like weed was not a big thing. There's a I I joke about it, but like every time I smell weed, it brings me back to a memory of just Vancouver. There's a four block radius of Granville, like Granville Street, that just reeks of like weed. Like it's just it's a weird (laughs) association. What is that
0: familiar childhood smell? Is it they couldn't smoke?
1: (laughs) Stay away from those guns. It's an associated memory, right?
0: It's, it's, it, but like it's it's such a it's, it's an interesting discussion to have because it's it's like you said it's something that uh, growing up in, in Canada although it wasn't technically legal it was it's still prominent in the discussion around it. it was easier for maybe someone from surgeons we trained in our generation potentially compared to you know not potentially for sure it is compared to surgeons we trained ahead of us uh, in a lot of situations just because it's just, you know you're exposed to it on a different level when it comes to you know to discussing the negative side effects as well I think addiction is something. That it's well, fundamental to the discussion around opiates, and you know we we talked about uh, the issue with mortality. It's just there's such a narrow threshold, narrow space between the the, the lethal threshold and, and an overdose. And in the you don't have uh, that same potential concern with an overdose. Uh, cannabis is, is you know one one discussion around risks and benefits. But then when it comes to addiction and and pain. It, when patients are going through the trauma that we see, uh, that my typical patient population comes in, you know, they describe it was a motor vehicle collision, lots of things going on, sirens, their femur was broken, they're in the trauma bay, and right at the same moment, the nurse came by to put on that warm blanket. They got their sh- shot of morphine, and, and you know, if you want to talk about how addiction starts, it's 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 you know, this is they they're going through something that's you know, traumatic on every single level, and, and there here's a medication that takes it all away. And then, then the nature of addiction and opiates, one of the reasons it's so strong is it's a very effective medication and it takes away all your pain and it hits the pain receptors and it makes patients feel good and or feel much better than they just were. Because something is such an effective analgesic, I think anything that's going to be an effective analgesic, it, it has that risk of, of, of abuse. And, and then the issues is what are the issues with the side effects and, and what, what's okay if they're going to have a prone a predilection for addiction, what are the negative impacts of that? And as they're going through their recovery, you know, you can need patients. You're going through something painful. It's you. You have a very real reason for needing an analgesic in that moment. But as you get further out from whatever injury or surgery you've had, a lot of patients who don't have the same addictive predile tendencies, the side effects get to them. They say, you know, it makes my stomach feel terrible. It makes I don't like the way it makes me feel. And then you know, they they'll stop it. But there's something different in, in people who are wired for addiction and. Part of it is is a real physiologic response. Part of it is is situational. And whether that's cannabis, whether that's opiates, I think it's something that's a a bigger discussion, I think. There is a tendency for cannabis to be addictive. There's a tendency for opiates to be addictive. And I think it's a discussion we have to to have with patients for any analgesic we're giving them. It's responsible use.
1: Yeah. And then there's a point where it's a ceiling effect. There's going to be a point where it just doesn't work anymore.
2: I guess the biggest take-home point for me is that one is that that it's very patient specific. And you have to know your patient population is that, yes, Some sometimes cannabis is going to be answered. Sometimes it's an opioid. Sometimes, you know, it's Tylenol and an over-the-counter medicine. And, and I think that knowing your patient who you're dealing with is very important and maybe not something that you have the the capacity to do as a trauma surgeon. And that's difficult. <laughs> but for, for us who have elective surgeries and are able to kind of, have like a pain management strategy ahead of time and knowing your patients because all everybody's a little bit different. And I think that knowing the type of personalities that you're dealing with will help you dictate what your pain management will be afterward. And I think for me, like the hesitancy for cannabis and maybe prescribing it is not hundred percent knowing how to do it how to prescribe it, where to get it, what's a safe amount, what to tell people because I just don't have familiarity with it. But it sounds like it's beneficial for a lot of people. And if I think that there was some type of some information about what is safe and what it, the content is to be able to prescribe it in a safe way as an alternative. I think that more people would be willing to do that because no one wants to be handing out narcotics and be, you know, the candy man. So to speak. I don't want to be the yeah. candy man. That's the thing, right? So, you know, patients come in, they still have to do it and they're like Tylenol not doing, doing it for me. You're my doctor. You operated on me. What are you going to do? And to have yeah. an alternative for something different, And a step down from an opioid and can do it in a regulated way would be hugely beneficial, I think, for not only MSK surgery, but surgical patients everywhere.
1: You know, and I think part of the problem for us, Erica, here in the U.S. is that people want their Dilaudid. Yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. They want their Dilaudid. <laughs> yeah. Don't give me the Oxycodone. I want my Dilaudid. The, yeah, exactly. Oxycodone doesn't work. But also the problem is that we don't have regulation. Like, what would you recommend? Like, which product would you recommend? You just, there isn't any, we don't know the efficacy. We don't know how pure it is. We don't know anything around the products.
2: I literally say, go to Amazon. You can buy it on Amazon. I'm sure whatever they make it is good. Just try it out. It certainly can't hurt you if you're putting it like topical. And it. If, listen, if Jeff Bezos sells it, it can't hurt
0: you. <laughs> I yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. So
2: buy all of it. It'll come to you. It'll show up at your door set before you fall asleep tonight. And an egg, it's going to make you.
0: Magic. But just, like it depends on what patients are looking for though right like i mean the you know we're and this is part of it like we're so conditioned to if, if, this is a medication and, and you know i think that's that's if we're going to have this discussion as being able to prescribe like one to do pills of cannabis, you know, CBD dosage, this X, Y, Z, you know, Q, Q4, 6HPRN, the same way we do a, a Percocet prescription, it's going to be a very, we're, we're very, very far from that. You know, we still are trying to figure out what the products are that, that could even enter that discussion. You know, when we talk about prescriptions here in Canada, a lot of them are are kind of daily limits, initial limits, the recommendations sound like crazy high, like up to five grams a day. Like it, is, it was one of the initial recommendations, which is a lot. That's a is large that a amount. Lot. <laughs> that's oh, a large oh, amount for patients. and like you know, that's the thing. It's it's, it's, it's it, but that was uh, that was from studies that were potentially coming out of products with different potencies, and five grams is very different from from depending on what patients get, and, and you know they, there's all kinds of equivalencies and whatnot. So there are so there's starting to be some more formalized courses along with more options for product and you can, you know, as you prescribe it now, you can prescribe as an edible or as an oil-based. And if, if I do end up prescribing it for patients, I tend to, you know, I will only prescribe a product that's, a non, um, that's, non, that's not an inhaled or smoked form just because it's easier to prescribe a, a capsule or a pill or an oil. And so there's, there's a few different ways. If they have, if this is a patient that comes to me and basically tells me this is what I'm using. I say, well, and Rosie said this before, sometimes they just want permission <laughs> to, to, to say this is okay. And I, I say, well, and that's when I say, well, are you smoking it or is it edible? And they'll tell me asking, no, Oh, that's when I break into it. You know, you should probably not smoke it. It's just not great for your lungs. Outside of that, if you're using it, Pain control, great, as long as it means you don't need another prescription for me. And then that's, that's fine on that. And then I try to have a discussion with them that shows that I'm not, and I really don't promote it as an option. I just say that it's, it's, it's I, I give them permission purpose of a prescription, you know, usually patients are looking for if there's some level of coverage and that's still, a, you know, very, very early. Some insurance companies are just starting up to pro- provide uh, reimbursements for patients who spent money on cannabis related product for certain conditions, but it's still very early and it's very few and far between. And so some patients who are looking out along those lines, those are the ones I tend to refer on to uh, pain medication or sort pain specialist who can have that discussion and make sure they have all their paperwork in line but it's it's uh it's it's not uh it's not clear uh, clearly it's not a clear process and it's 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 very far from being i think something that you know we can say here's how you prescribe it and, and feel comfortable about that
2: maybe the way it gets into our system is through the pain management specialists because i'm sure that they run out of options and oh and yeah. they're they can't send their patients anywhere else yeah, exactly because of people you don't know what to do with. So maybe that would be a good way to introduce into
1: our system. I think so. I sometimes feel really bad, you know, when I'm sending some patients to the pain management specialist because you kind of almost know. I don't know what else can be done at this point. So sometimes I do feel a little bit bad. I'm like, well, you know, uh, and then I I think I talk myself into thinking that they might pull a rabbit out of a hat. Maybe there's something, right? So it probably would be great for them to have this as an alternative, something else that they can look towards, right, to help some patients out especially with a lower side effect profile if that's the case
2: i'm sure we're probably kind of coming towards the end of this but do you see the future of cannabis like taking over opioids in the future or do you just see it always kind of as an adjunct
0: well it's uh that would be nice if if, if we had something that was a simple straightforward alternative to the whole mega power of opiates but it's uh, you know i think that's been something that's a long-standing practice pattern that we're, we're doing a lot of work to, to try to undo but i think it's going to take a lot to completely take opiates out of, the, out of the armamentarium for orthopedic surgeons. I mean, like you said, surgery on your bones hurts, and there's a lot of reasons why patients are going to have pain after an orthopedic surgery or orthopedic injury. I think the discussion comes into our, and as a specialty, we're really trying to limit how frequently used turned opiates as an option. So it's, I think it's another potentially another tool in your toolbox against trying to, to limit our dependence on um, sticking to opiates as, a, as our pain control uh, option choice for bad bone pain, and also just discussing it as something that uh, is, is an alternative going down the road. Because, like you said, you have patients that are just very have very complex pain patterns, and, and, and you know, the pain specialists I think would agree. You just need to, you know, to be able to throw everything you can at them. Something that's going to be for nerve pain, something that's going to be an anti-inflammatory, something that's going to potentially have some psychoactive effects. It depends on what you're trying to target and and i think you know it's it's going to potentially be an adjunct and i think as we get some more information from trials that uh, are coming down that are more rigorous uh, that will give us some evidence around uh, ways to administer uh, topicals and oral options specifically and it's uh, just going to be the start of something that we will hopefully just get more and more information on and I think have more and more ease around discussing because that's, uh, that's the biggest thing I think that we're going to be seeing relative to this is just learning to discuss it and just because more patients are going to be using it whether it's recreationally or medically because um, the, the tide's turned in Canada and I don't think it's far behind in the US uh, on multiple levels where it's just going to be more and more accepted by society. and, And that's where our patients come from.
1: Yeah. And I mean, and also it's hard to argue, this has been around for thousands of years too, and a lot of ancient cultures as well. Right. So I think that we're having a lot of discussions around it now, but I feel like it's inevitable that it's going to become a regular part of our treatment regimens down the road. It's sort of proven it's staying power if it's been around for thousands of years. So I think there's been some political issues around it, for sure, you know, in terms of regulations and stuff in mid-1800s and early 1900s. So I kind of feel like... Once we get over some of those issues, uh, it's going to be sort of back into our pharmacopoeia, <laughs> I guess, right?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just it's, it's just, it's just entering the discussion. I mean, you guys, it's interesting saying you guys, you know, your patients are coming to you asking for lauded by name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when I was practicing in their training in Alberta, uh, we needed what was called a triplicate prescription. So to even write anything stronger than Tylenol-3, you need a triplicate. So opiates, sorry, for orthopedic patients, I was just conditioned to write Tylenol-3 as a typical pain medication. And then I came to Ontario and there was no triplicate. And that's when patients were coming up to me asking for Dilaudid and I'm like hydrocodone and Percocet. And I'm like, I'm not used to, I'm not, I wasn't even used to writing those prescriptions. And then it was a, just a local practice. It's practiced in the US. You ask, you know, our colleagues from the Middle East or Europe. And then they're they're like, Why are you giving so many opiates? They're they're giving IV acetaminophen, you know, it's, they have options that we don't. And you know, it's pain is a cultural phenomenon and our approach to it and our discussion around it is is shaped by society, it's shaped by our patients, and it's shaped by where we trained. So this is gonna be no different.
2: One of the things that I thought was interesting that you said, I don't mean to go back to the beginning of was that you said that it changes your relationship with pain is that you still feel it, but it makes it further away. And I think that the expectation, at least in the United States, is that you shall feel no pain. And it's about the expectations of of what an elective surgery pain will be post-operatively, you know, trauma patients, I think are a little bit different because like, I didn't break your leg, you know, that carb, right. like, yeah. versus like, <laughs> okay, now you're having a knee scope, or I'm going to ankle scope, or we're doing like a lateral ligament, whatever. And surgery is not supposed to hurt. I can't believe I have pain doctor. I'm Like I took a scalpel to your leg. What do you mean? You didn't understand that that was going to happen. And it's about the expectation, but also making space between you know, there being be no pain. And yes, I feel it, but it's far away from me. You know, it's not something that you're so focused on that you'd be able to detach yourself. And I think the cannabis would be, it is a natural thing that would separate that, but Expectations, and I think that that might also be a challenge in the United States.
1: I think you're right, yeah. though, Eric. I, I agree with you. I think that happens actually quite often in uh, here. People just, I do find the same issue where people will be completely shocked that after surgery, they're in any sort of pain. I'm like, when you get a cut on your hand, that hurts. Like, you know, we've done a, a, something way more invasive. So I always frame it to patients that your pain isn't going to completely go away, but this medication is just meant to take the edge off right so if it takes the edge off then it's doing its job that's how I try to tell them just don't have the expectation that anything that I give you it's going to go away completely there are always going to be those expectations and it's surprising that those are what people do expect but you have to just continually like educate and keep reframing it so patients actually change their expectations.
0: Yeah, no I think that's you know that's why people like these medications it takes away your pain and now surgery is a pain-free thing again right so I mean it's an interesting conversation to have I mean, privileged i guess in the trauma trauma sphere where i I have that discussion after someone just has something that's expected to hurt a calcaneal fracture is going to hurt i'm sorry so (laughs) it's a very different discussion right (laughs) (laughs) exactly so but then
2: like oh, you're in pain. You're not of work. I'll, I'll talk to anesthesia about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: that's, right, that's right. Yeah, my surgical incision was perfect. <laughs> was
2: perfect. I did nothing that would hurt you. It's clearly mm-hmm. anesthesia's fault.
1: Yeah, pass the buck. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Okay, so Herman, where are you planning to take your research? Are you planning to do further research in cannabis, or like, what are your thoughts?
0: It's it's interesting. It's like, you know, I sort of came down this route from, um, like I said at the beginning, it was sort of patient driven. And and I'm working through some uh, graduate research right now where my focus is value based decision making. And then I initially came to look at cannabis as an intervention as it seemed to be coming out of such a you know, a different set of values, you know, where does pain fall into the spectrum of, of what we value in recovery? And, you know, the discussions we just had are very relevant to that. And it, as I kind of got deeper into it, it was just, I hope to get with, it was too much to unpack as part of the, the graduate program I was trying to set up. So, but that was how I initially got into it. And then I, as I got further into researching around cannabis, more and more questions uh, just continued to pop up as has interest in this field. So, uh, you know, the research next steps for us, uh, I mentioned, we're just sort of wrapping up and getting out data around some patient and provider surveys uh, that we've run over the last uh, couple of years, looking into practice patterns and uh, perceptions around cannabis. We're using that to shape some um, trials going forward. There's some current trials uh, that are just, you know, uh, as soon as their the regulatory approval it releases them from their limbo, that our RCT is looking at um, topicals for arthritic type pain as well as orals. And once that's up and up and running, we're going to look at something similar for wrist and ankle fractures. So for trauma, that's going to be sort of our first area, just because it's something, you know, uh, CRP is a very real issue and pain is a challenging thing in this patient population. And it's a potential opportunity to, to have an opiate-free approach if, if you have a multimodal Uh, option. We've launched something similar for knee scopes where uh, the focus of the study isn't cannabis as the intervention, but it's non-opiates. So it's part of a package of interventions that's available in addition to other anti-inflammatories and and other non-opiate options. As a sole option, I think it's still, you know, a lot of work needs to be done to to identify specific cannabinoids and and terpenes uh, that might uh, have the most benefit for, say, a specific anti-inflammatory effect or say a specific uh, other specific analgesic effect we're looking towards we're a while away from that but i i want to continue to look at it and then the trauma population and and try to separate the clinical effect from some of the stigma issues that it it faces
2: okay that's cool i know that my at least the patient's population that i deal with it's really challenging because everybody just has this expectation that it's supposed to be pain-free and I'm going to be running into the the stigma here in the Midwest of people who are just like, I'm not going to be doing any of that. They're not as open-minded maybe as some of the West Coast population is where half the patient's already on on cannabis, maybe alcohol here. I mean, there's a liquor store on every, every corner. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. And I think that there's a lot of, of things that still are unknown, but I think that once we can get to do it in a safe way, where there really aren't any risks. Like, hey, I don't know how much is going to help you, but this is a way that I feel like I can safely prescribe it and you can try it. And if it works for you, then wonderful. And if that can cut back on your medications or even cut back on the side effects that you might feel with a morphine or or Dilaudid or Percocet, whatever, that's all hugely beneficial. And I think that having information to give your patients options it's going to be beneficial because especially at this age where people are, you know, almost like a la carte medicine, where they want to pick and choose their pain regimen and their procedure and, you know, want to have a, an active role in their care, giving them options, I think is going to be the future. And so whether that's cannabis or something different, uh, I think that having options is, is what people maybe expect and what they're going to be looking for. Actually,
1: I actually have a question for you, Herman. What Erica mentioned, the, you know, like sort of people are moving more towards an expectation of a la carte medicine. Are you finding that in Canada? Because I remember when I was training there, that wasn't so much the case. Like, you know, usually people were whatever you kind of laid out, as long as you explained it well, people accepted it. Is the expectations different since I've left? I don't know.
0: Well, I think, you know, this is, this is like a whole nother hour long oh, really? okay. conversation okay. for sure. But like, I am just it, curious. You know, yeah. ex, you, know, you know, expectations are huge and whether it's expectations around pain, expectations around outcomes, you know, what you can expect after I do this really slick arthroscopic surgery, you know, it, it's definitely plays a different role in a public versus a private public system. And, and, and in our system where, where there's no faces on billboards, there's no newspaper ads, so we have wait lists and no one needs to, the market for the practice. Right, also, right, uh, the exactly. discussion we have with our patients is, is very different, I would say, on that front. And uh, patients for better or for worse when they come to us, they usually really need whatever surgery we're trying to trying to, to talk them out of, usually. Yeah, I know. I remember <laughs> um, I remember. It, so it's not that it's, much uh, different. It, yeah. I think that's where that's where expectations, you know, that's where expectations are, are huge. And the discussion we have with our patients can can easily, easily sway them. That's why they have to be as evidence based as they can. So you know, we try to let them know what expectations uh you know they can have with whatever we're discussing them with them an option but like you said in our system uh, patients just do sort of tend to go with what you recommend we are seeing as as you know we're in the same market as you as our north american uh, neighbors to the south we they, the patients get the same messages right so they you know they get a lot of the whether it's through tv internet all kinds of other media outlets now they 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 are starting to hear about you know uh, minimally invasive this or this approach for this type of surgery so some of that is starting to come but it's a, it's a different conversation in our in our in our realm and i think you know that would be a very interesting program i'd love to be a part of that as part of my sort of value based research you know but like you know trying to discuss expectations and what you value versus what the patient values is is, is sometimes in a completely different uh, time zone right so you have to to have a discussion where if patients are going to be choosing something a la carte uh, they have to know about the risks and benefits and and we don't do a very good job of standardizing the way we communicate that with patients so you know, cannabis is no different, but I think it applies to lots of other interventions. Okay.
1: Yeah, 100%. I think that's that's actually a really good topic to, at some point to do. I noticed a big difference oh, when I moved to the U.S. and started practicing here coming from Canada. Even like the first week of my fellowship, I was like, whoa. Oh, I, <laughs> like yeah. the expectations, the expectations of patients are like way different. I remember first week of fellowship, we needed to order an MRI for a patient. And, you know, the patient kind of asked me like, you know, I should be able to get it today or tomorrow. I'm like, what are you kidding me? Like, You can't get an MRI that quickly. Two months. Two months. <laughs> I, I exactly, because I'm thinking back <laughs> to Canada, right, like for elective things and stuff. And then my staff was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, like we can schedule it tomorrow. Staff. Yeah, it's around the
0: corner. Yeah, yeah. That's my MRI machine, by the way. <laughs> it's just around the corner. Like,
1: so, yeah, so basically I had a real, like, it was like a pretty quick in- Intro into like the expectations you know here in the U.S. versus in Canada is interesting.
0: I mean it makes the uh, you know I think it makes all kinds of interesting fodder for research to the, the differences between our two practice settings and then and then you know when I went to, when I first started fellowship where we didn't do a lot of them because we had lots of other busy fract- uh, you know, high energy injuries where I was where I trained but you know there'd be some uh, occasionally some wrist or ankle fractures that there's no way in, in hell like we'd offer that in, on, on my, my residency training in Canada. And, and they're picking them up and you know i kind of question like you know this the inclination is not really off it's there's not really a huge thing like, well if i don't fix it here they're just going to go to the hospital down the street and they're going to fix it there so we might as well just fix it here yeah, so i, I like, know really
1: yeah yeah
0: <laughs> no but like it's it's you know there's a different there's a different mind frame i think in, in terms of patient populations and discussions around healthcare. care so yeah that's why i think evidence-based medicine is as important as it is trying to Uh, At least discuss what you can around the evidence and try to let the patient make some of these decisions that we can let them have them make, I guess.
1: Yeah. But I think what you said, though, is trying to communicate in a standardized fashion so that people really get all the information they need, even from our evidence. Right. And that's the part that's hard.
2: That's never going to happen. (laughs)
1: Yeah, to be able to effectively communicate that. that. Exactly. Effectively (laughs) communicate that and then people to understand that, right? Because I can tell you, I spend a lot of times with patients giving them information about their fracture, about the situation, about the surgery, everything. And I always actually say this because I know... They're probably half listening to what I'm saying because in their mind, what's happening is, oh, she's talking about surgery. Oh, I got to take care of this, da 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 da. So I don't know how much they're really listening to what I'm saying, right? But then I'll always say, and if you don't remember anything from this conversation, I really need you to remember this part, right? And they do remember that. When I put that focus on like the two or three things I need them to absolutely remember, then, you know, post operatively, they'll say things like, oh, yeah, I remember you said that doc. And so, yeah. yeah.
2: The thing is, for us, is that right now what's going to happen is that just like other areas and the news and just like American culture in general, is like people are going to go to the doctor, whoever that tells them what they want to hear and what they're expecting. They want to wanna hear. hear. They, they've yeah. done their little Google research and have an idea of what needs to happen. And they're going to go find somebody who's going to. To give that answer to them, and how often I quote Canadian studies on Achilles tendon and all this stuff, and they be like, "If you want your Achilles fixed, it doesn't matter what." I'm like, "Hey, you really don't need a fix if you want it." Blah blah blah. And if I'm leaning one way or another, you're 65 and you have heart disease, and maybe not op would be better for you. That person is going to find a doctor who is going to fix their Achilles tendon.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. And they have yeah. an expectation. And
2: they're what they do, do it
0: minimally to- invasively.
2: Yeah, if you don't do it, if like I already know what I want from you, and if you're not going to give me what I want, I'm going to find somebody else who's going to give me the answer that I want to. And this is a whole different podcast that I can't even get into. But this is a culture that is going to be very difficult to fight.
1: Yeah, that's very true.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. And that being said, I think we're uh, we're coming towards the end here.
0: On that optimistic message.
1: I'm very very, very optimistic end <laughs> okay. to our podcast. Oh, I know. I think it's
2: a very optimistic <laughs> message because it gives you an opportunity to stick to your morals and the evidence, and yeah. you have your you you don't get to sway in there. You have to stick to your principles and what you're willing to do and say, and based on ortho evidence data and your randomized control trials and stick to what you're comfortable doing because it's the right thing for the patient and not getting into what people want or expect from you. It's just a whole different conversation. (laughs)
0: Well, well it's just, you know, it makes me think of something else optimistically is just that you know we're going through this whole period now where a lot of attention is, is and a lot of development has really happened in the virtual and technologic space mm-hmm. and the way we message and, and and connect and communicate whether it's you know whether it's social media or other outlets you know there's, there's easier ways are, for us to get information out to the patients and then, you know you mentioned it patients will google whatever they want to to look into it. but if we can kind of of get... The information they get out on Google is, is credible information. It's, right. I think that whether it's we point them to resources that uh, surgeons are are, are are developing, or, or I think there's going to be some exciting patient communication tools that are that are going to come out of this whole period and continue to develop. I think that will hopefully make that conversation easier for for whatever intervention, right? Like I think uh, you know, it's how how do we get that message across? It's a lot of very complex medical information out there that we're trying to digest and regurgitate to these patients. And and I think uh, hopefully we see some exciting developments on that.
1: Okay. So Herman, any closing thoughts, burning things you need, (laughs) something that that you really need to get out to the audience? (laughs) You know, I think it's important to,
0: to recognize the fact that, well, there's a lot of excitement and interest in it and looking at cannabis as, a, as an option for our MSK patients, it's very early, and, and we're just starting to see some of the much-needed evidence hit the scene as, as the environment is just beginning to, to be favourable to such studies even going on. Um, you know, we're lucky in Canada where, uh, as we mentioned earlier, we have a legal climate that's friendlier to, to, to clinicians who are interested in looking into this, so I think it's that gives us a, an exciting uh, position to at least um, uh, further investigate uh, the role it might play Based on what patients are telling us so far, it seems like uh, there may be uh, some role in terms of uh, an anti, if it being an analgesic that is an alternative to, to opiates. And that's really where I think uh, my discussion with it is, uh, is, especially as a traumatologist discussing it as, a, as an opiate alternative. Uh, but again, i uh, really looking forward to, to, to helping out with some research that can guide us further on that front.
1: Great. And that's awesome. Well, thank you for coming on with us. It was really enjoyable to talk to you and reconnect. Always a good time with you, Erica. <laughs> so thank you both for coming on. And I look forward to having like another chat, maybe on value-based expectations. we could do that one time.
0: Okay. Yes. Uh, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you so much. Take care. This show is being produced by StudioPod. And for more information, go to studiopodsf.com.